Hello, Yuma. I'm Quentin Grafton, Professor of Economics at the Australian National University and the convener of the Water Justice Hub, a platform for truth-telling and justice for all in relation to water. In this spirit of justice and reconciliation, we also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia on which this podcast has been produced and honour their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. The Water Justice Hub is a place for everyone, especially First Peoples, to promote their voice and respond to the global challenges of delivering sustainable development and water for all. This podcast is an initiative to represent water warriors and their stories from around the world, sharing ideas and narratives to assist in education, advocacy and water policy. Along this series, you will hear from a variety of voices promoting fluid conceptions of water justice as critical to the survival of individuals and also to our collective survival. Please listen with intent. Subscribe and share this podcast to assist in the fight for independent voices, equitable decision-making, and ultimately, water justice for all. I would like to inaugurate this podcast as an accessible interface with the public a domain for water justice advocacy, and an introduction to the challenges we face as water warriors. This podcast is intended for everyone, but is especially important for our community leaders, decision makers, advisors, and researchers. The series will consist of six episodes and will take listeners across several continents and through our work here in Australia. We hope that with your support, we can continue the podcast and further explore water justice while promoting voices that advocate for water justice for everyone. The hosts of this podcast are Catherine Taylor of the Australian National University and Timothy Whiffen, our producer. They will discuss a variety of issues with guests and draw comparative learnings to take to our individual circumstances. Every story, of course, is different, but water justice stays the same in the sense that there will always need to be an action to respond to injustice. This series will form pathways for truth, reconciliation and inclusion, which I will discuss in detail in a later episode. To begin our journey is a continent where access to water has been made difficult for predominantly social, economic and geographical reasons. This is the continent of Africa. Africa best highlights the obvious inequities of water injustice that we must all confront, whether we're from Africa or Australia, Europe, or the Americas, or anywhere else for that matter. From urban centers like Cape Town to arid rural land in Botswana and Nigeria, Africa's water security is reaching dangerous levels. There is indeed a water crisis in Africa. Kat and Tim have conducted interviews with a range of experts who demonstrate our multifaceted dependence on water, the origin of these water crises, and the approaches needed to bend towards water justice. Over to you, Kat and Tim, and thank you for your time. Thank you, Quinton. As we turn our attention to Africa, perhaps one of the places that has received the most coverage on water issues is the Cape Town water crisis. Though the drought has effectively been broken, Cape Town serves to remind us that our connection to water is a delicate system and not something to take for granted. But we've got to see a shift. We've got to take a chance and start to listen to these different perspectives, find spaces where we can hear each other so that we can 
develop solutions collaboratively that can really address these complex challenges. Dr. Gina Ziervogel is a water warrior for South Africa. She is an accomplished geographer and has performed advisory roles for water management in Cape Town. Increasing demand on water for agriculture, urban living and constraints such as climate change has meant that the mismanagement of water in Cape Town has specifically had disastrous effects, and there is much we can learn from this story. As Gina has published several works on governance issues for Cape Town and has the scientific understanding of what is happening in South Africa, her expertise will assist us in framing these issues. Kat and I were able to interview her to explore the problems we need to solve and understand the circumstances that led to them. I'm joined today by my co-host Kat. Thank you, Kat. Hi, Tim. And we're also joined with Gina Ziervogel. Thank you very much for joining us, Gina. Great to be here. We really appreciate you making the time to appear on this important series. Firstly, could you please provide us with a brief background on Cape Town's water crisis? Sure. So it's quite hard to be brief when talking about the Cape Town water crisis, because probably one of the lessons I learned coming out of this is just how complex it was. Hmm. But essentially, between 2015 and 2018, Cape Town experienced quite a significant drought. And the water in Cape Town comes mainly from six dams around the city. And they're on the edge of the city and supply the city with water. And these dams started running dry. So there was a big concern as to how we could manage to get water to the 4 million people who live in Cape Town. And of course, there are lots of industries that rely on water and tourism is a big sector in Cape Town. So in 2017, it became clear that the dams were really running low and the city decided it needed to act. And it started looking at the droughts as a citywide issue. As somebody who works in climate change adaptation, what's interesting to me is often these issues have been dealt with by the water department, and now suddenly it became clear just what a widespread issue this was, affecting so many aspects of health, industry, people's livelihoods, and water availability for many different things. And so the city took charge of this to try and understand how to respond. I think one of the challenges is that water is actually managed across scales of government, and so national government is responsible for bulk water and ensuring that there's water in the dams. And then the city of Cape Town is responsible for getting that water from the dams to the households. And so one of the challenges around this is how do you work across levels of government? Another challenge is the citizens need to trust the government if they are to make changes and to reduce how much water they use. And in a country where there's not always a lot of trust in the government, that's hard to get citizens to change behavior. So that was a big challenge for Cape Town. Another massive challenge is just securing water. So when the city saw that there wasn't going to be enough water in the dams, they realized that they had to try and increase how much water was available. So they invested in temporary desalination plants to try and get additional water into the system. But first of all, those are very expensive. They take a while to build and they only add a little bit of water to the system overall. So really the biggest thing to do is to reduce how much water people are using. So there were a lot of campaigns trying to address that, trying to get people to understand how much water they were using and to limit water. So it went down to restricting water to 50 liters per person per day at the height of the drought, which really is a small amount. But people really changed behavior. They started showering with buckets, really only showering for one or two minutes, using that water for anything else, putting in rainwater tanks, 
turning off taps in any public areas. And so there really was a shift in how water was used and how water was experienced. We really saw a change in how people related to water and suddenly understood the water system, where water was coming from, where it was going to and how they were using it. Yeah, I guess you take it for granted until it becomes a problem, right? You really do. And as somebody who's very passionate about climate change adaptation, one of the things I saw is that people living in cities might be concerned about climate change, but don't really feel the impacts directly often because they've always been able to turn on a tap, even when there's been a drought, because your city government makes sure you get water in the tap. Suddenly there was the threat of our taps being turned off. So we talked about day zero in Cape Town, which was the day that the taps were going to be turned off essentially. There wasn't going to be no water in the dams. They were going to keep water available for essential services so that hospitals could run and central business districts, etc. But citizens like myself were going to have to go and queue to get daily water. And so that was what day zero was about. And suddenly with that threat, it became clear to citizens what it might mean to have no water. So day zero could have been quite a shocking event if you think about it, because suddenly you've got the water shut off. You've got people, 4 million people who live in the city who've now got to go and queue at these 50 water points across the city. You have the police brought in to manage these points. Do you get an absolute riot? Do you start getting break-ins across shops that are closed? You get people fighting. There's a spring, Newland Spring, that everybody goes to get fresh water. Suddenly people are fighting there, both verbally, physically. And so you can imagine there's quite a doomsday scenario around what might happen if day zero did arrive. Mm. What I'd like to add to that is that Cape Town is a very unequal city. And so we have many people living in informal settlements who essentially have been walking two taps to get water for decades. And so they've been living with day zero for years and years. And so one of the issues that emerged around the drought was just how much of a social justice issue water is in our city. And that hasn't been sufficiently acknowledged. So citizens like myself suddenly became um, concerned about having to go and queue for water, yet there are people who have been doing that for most of their lives. And so how can we as a city really acknowledge that and try and address that so that those people who don't have tapped water can have better access to services? So we're hearing about the stress in the lead up to day zero, and we understand that fortunately day zero was avoided. But I mean, what's it like now? There was this awareness suddenly of how people had difficulty accessing water. What's happened after the crisis? Have people gone back to the where it was before? Have things changed? But I think there are two things that have happened after the crisis, one at the government level and one at the sort of citizen level. At the government level, there's really been a shift and the city of Cape Town took this really seriously and I would say they learned a lot of lessons. They put in place a new water strategy that's very forward looking, that really sees water more holistically, which I think was really important for the city because before it had been seen much more as an infrastructure technical service. Now it's clear that water has to be understood systematically and that it's part of the environment, their social elements, economic elements, as well as technical infrastructure. And so they're really exciting developments in how water is being addressed and thought of going forward. I think from the citizen level, there really was a shift in behavior during the drought. And some of those behaviors have remained and some of them have changed. What we do see is our water use levels have not gone back to pre-drought levels. So people are using less water. Equally, 
businesses and industry became more water efficient because they had to, because A, there wasn't water available and B, the price of water became very expensive during the drought. So it did change their behavior. So I think we've had a shift that will remain. But then again, there are, I think, some household behaviors that have gone back to not pre-drought levels, but using more water than during the drought. I think COVID's interesting because we really have had to use water for health reasons, for cleaning things. And suddenly you kind of using water, washing your hands for now a long time, whereas during the drought, you were washing it for a short time. So really interesting to see those tensions. And I do kind of wonder what would we have done if we were in the middle of the severe drought while COVID was around and we really had to use water for cleaning because that's what some cities are experiencing. And it's really a tricky trade-off. Yeah, far out. Yeah. it's like a joint problem, right? You, you've got that drought, which you sort of can't help. So you've got a problem on the supply side and then you're trying to deal with, I guess, policies that lessen the demand would be uh, probably an accurate way to describe that. What, what, what kinds of policies or actions were taken to, to deal with, with that at the time? So one of the ways to deal with demand is pricing and restrictions. Mm. What was interesting is that some of my students did work on this and colleagues, and actually pricing has less impact than you might think. So yes, water was getting more expensive, but actually our water is relatively cheap. The restrictions were more of a concern to people. How much water are we allowed to use? Oh, we mustn't go above this. We need to stay within this block. There were policies put in place that meant that if your household used more than 20 kiloliters, then you would be cut off from water and have a water management device put in place. A water management device limits your flow um, daily. And so those households that were using a lot had those put in place. What's interesting is that many poor households in Cape Town have water management devices that the city installed before the drought to try and manage debt. So if households had built up a large uh, debt because they hadn't paid their water bills, they would then get a device installed so that they limited their daily water and could afford those water bills. And in fact, they didn't have to pay for water then because that 350 liters a day was free. So there's some interesting challenges there. And what was good from my perspective, from a justice perspective, was that during the drought, rich households who could afford to pay a lot of money for water were cut off. It didn't matter that they could pay. Water was a precious resource and they couldn't use more than they were allowed to. That was really important. I think there were also some technical interventions around uh, pressure management that were very innovative. And it meant that certain sections of the city, the pressure was reduced. And so there was less water lost to leaks and less water used in some of those areas. There were also policies around pricing. So as you used more water, the price per kiloliter increased. So this makes sense to somebody like me who lives in a household with four people. But unfortunately, what we see in low-income areas is that there'll be one access point, one water point to the household, and there'll be, say, six people living in that house. They're also backyard dwellers. So there'll be some shacks in the back of that house where there are another five and 10 people living. So suddenly you have over 20 people on this property. So even when they're using 50 liters per person per day, they are very quickly going above their allocation. And then the cost of water becomes very expensive and hard for many of these low-income households to afford. So disproportionately affected low-income yeah. So then again, an, another reason to say it's a, a social justice issue in some sense. Yeah. So the pricing really had an impact 
on low-income households. Of course, it had an impact on businesses who were using water. Suddenly, if your business used large amounts of water, you couldn't actually afford to run your business, often small businesses. There are a lot of informal businesses where people are car washers or something like that, small hairdressers in the townships, and suddenly those businesses couldn't use water for that and so then didn't have an income as well. Notice in one of your papers, you and your co-authors talk about this mismatch between government intervention and the lived realities of people. You've given us a, a few examples, but could you tell us a bit more about that? So we've been doing some work with local activists and social movements, and they really have been working on water for 20 years, and they really want to understand what's happening in the communities where they live, because there are a lot of water service challenges. And so taps are often leaking or households can't access water or these water management devices that limit water flow start leaking or cut off early and then their water runs out by 5 a.m. in the morning. And so they wanted to collect data from their fellow citizens. So what was interesting there is we collected stories and data about what is happening in different settlements across Cape Town. And what we saw is that in many of these low-income areas, it's very hard for residents to find the right ways to engage with local government. So although local government is trying to work in many of these areas, they are limited in the capacity that they have. Sometimes they will respond immediately and come and fix a tap. Other times they won't respond for weeks. So it becomes quite frustrating for residents to know how to resolve their problems. And so often they have to try and figure it out themselves. They might have to employ a local plumber, who, which is actually sometimes illegal because now this is a city installed tap, yet it's been leaking or it hasn't been working and they need water. So they need to resolve it somehow. So that's where the mismatch comes in. Look, that's, this has been fascinating. Gina, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. I hope that cities around the world can learn from some of the crises that others have been through. And I think one of the challenges is learning how to share those lessons, because it isn't always easy when it's not your city. So we need to listen to other cities and hear what they've got to say about how they manage these events. Thanks for having me on the podcast. No, thank you. And of course, listeners, if you do want to hear more about Gina's work, you can, of course, find some links in the episode description. Well, that was a fascinating interview and what an introduction to water justice that was for me. I probably don't give enough notice to how much water I use on a daily basis. We've had restrictions in Australia before, and I'm sure you've experienced those as well, Kat, like not having 10 minute long showers and having three minute long showers instead, but it's nowhere near the kind of worry where I felt like we were going to have to line up for water. Well, that, that's right. And hearing that Cape Town residents got their water use down to 50 litres per person per day. That's a really tiny amount of water. That is actually less than the amount of water that is, I guess, recommended as a minimum per person use for cooking, washing, all those kinds of household things. So that's a, an enormous effort by the residents of Cape Town. And as you say, it does make us reflect on our, our own water use and what we might be wasting yeah, I can't help but reflect on how prior to this project, I'd never heard of water justice before, but but barely have we ever talked around the dinner table about water use. Barely has it ever been a problem that should have the political weight. As Gina said, you know, it's disappointing that this is a crisis that a lot of places are facing and it's just not deemed as important. There's not, there's not as much political resource pointed toward it, yeah. And I think this is a policy issue that applies to a lot of different types of crisis. 
whether we're talking about drought or pandemics or floods, is that when it's all on, suddenly that crisis needs to be solved and people are scrambling to, to keep up and to think about water security in the really immediate sense. But what we need to do so we're not put in that really difficult place in a moment of crisis when everything's going on is to plan properly beforehand, have things in place, have those collaborations in place and that trust mm. between different parts of the government or people in the government so that when we come to a moment of crisis, we're better prepared. And I think it's just typical of so many things that if it's if we're not facing it right now, sometimes it falls off the agenda. Yeah, maybe people think they can't afford to put an extra person onto this project or have an extra mind thinking about it or pay for an extra body to administrate or look over these kinds of things. But the, the question really should be, can you afford not to? And I think it's an absolute reality check for all of us because that sort of situation could happen to, to so many places. I think it's also a good reminder of the way water justice does affect everyone, but also affects people differently at different times. And certainly the first thought that I'm sure everyone had was about their drinking water, but I'm sure they're rippled out to many effects on all different industries that use water, including agriculture, for, of course, because as well as needing water, we all need food to eat. But water justice isn't only a cause for developed urban centres, it is concerned with everyone and extends to another part of the continent which has a unique set of challenges. Nigeria is a developing country that faces water scarcity and a lack of infrastructure to support its population. These are the kinds of issues that initially come to mind when we consider inequality in water. But the conversation about water justice in Nigeria exists on the global scale, and advances in water policy are extremely complicated goals. So yeah. imagine on campus in the ANU, all those individual water points mm. where you can stop, refill your bottle and have your drink. Imagine that your existence, your access to water for everything you want to do depended on that with a community of 500 or 200 mm. people. So that is with about 70% of people in sub-Saharan Africa depend on those kind of distribution systems. Boyega Adenarin is a Nigerian scholar and a research officer at the Australian National University. Boyega has a Master in Engineering and a Postgraduate Diploma in Social Work, but is currently a PhD candidate researching water policy and governance. With several leadership roles in both Australia and Nigeria, he has a keen understanding of the problems facing Nigeria and the regional and international political discourses they involve. Kat and I talked to Boyega to find out more about the Nigerian conception of water justice. Thanks for joining us, Boyega. We really appreciate you taking time to appear on this important series. Boyega, you're working on a PhD at the Australian National University and it's all about water governance and water policy. So can we ask, why water? What got you interested in the topic? I think um, there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, the first, I'll say is very experiential in the sense that growing up in Nigeria, having experienced a whole range of challenges with water supply, uh, just basic water supply, I'd always thought in my mind that this is far much more beyond just the infrastructure of water, you know, and I've just been, it set me on that path of curiosity about what other components, you know, what are the other issues that contribute to this you know, level of water supply and access more broadly. 
So, Boyega, in, in your view, do Nigeria's water issues get enough uh, attention in academia and the, the so-called, you know, Western or Western media or kind of the global north? Thank you very much, Tim, for that question. I think that's a very, very pertinent question. Um, and also one of the reasons why I have um, <clears throat> tried to be, like, quite a consistent advocate of trying to get out stories about water situation in Nigeria, which my entire research has, has been has been based upon. My short answer to that question will be no. In academia, the bulk of the literature, if you do a literature search on Nigeria, the bulk of the literature on water governance and water policy and policy analysis and all of that are gray literature. These are literature basic largely from uh, multilateral um, organizations, NGOs, and all, all of that. So in terms of a real peer-reviewed literature, th th there is a massive, massive, massive gap. And to add to that, I think that speaks very, very poorly. Um, it doesn't cater to the role, the very, very critical role that Nigeria plays within the West African region, the Central African region, and more uh, largely the entire sub-Saharan African region. Nigeria, in terms of its uh, demographics, is about 210 million people. So we're talking about one-fifth, one-sixth of the entire population of Africa. And clearly is the largest black nation in the world. So it, it is very, very important that if it is possible that we can address many of the foundational, fundamental problems with water access, sanitation and hygiene issues, which are all encompassed in some ways. If we are able to address all of those, it will have a flow-on effect around the West Africa region and also the broader African region, like uh, I have mentioned earlier. So I think there is, there is a, a very, very urgent need to turn the searchlight on water governance research in Nigeria, specifically pushing around the issues of water politics. Because as we know, with water justice issues, politics is at the heart of it. Mm. So that yeah. is one of my, my issues. So, but I reject the idea that provision of water from a centralized system is a Western idea or an ideal. Mm. Number one, I also do not support the idea that it's not an aspiration that countries should have, that communities should have, to have water piped into your house or into mm. your yard, you know. A lot of literature coming from um, American anthropologists, I see. Uh, or, yes, yeah. you know, the way they problematize these centralized systems is, like, yes, it's good to problematize, like, you know, I'm a critical scholar as well, and yeah. I don't have a problem doing that, yeah. but not in a way that, can ensure that there will not be sustainable water access. The history and the trajectory of Western nations, some Asian nations, Malaysia, Singapore, in terms of attaining over 90% access to water at an individual level, is a history of centralized systems. That is the reality. Most certainly, and it sounds like mm. Nigeria has a fairly pivotal role. We've been seeing in the media that there's reports of climate crisis fueling tensions around water in Nigeria with desertification in the north 
and erosion and flooding in the south. In your view, is climate one of the key factors here or are there other things going on with water? I think when I want to talk about the issue of climate and its role in exacerbating existing tensions and flaws within the, the political and administrative system of Nigeria, I try to speak of climate change issue as a subset, you know, as a subset within the Nigerian context, as a subset of the much larger structural challenges that the country faces. But yes, climate change is a very, very big problem. Drought, increasing droughts and desertification changes to the hydrological flow regime because the monsoonal relations between from the southern part of Nigeria, from the Atlantic Ocean, is largely responsible for the amount of rainfall that is received further up north towards the Sahara Desert, which is where the Lake Chad is um, located. So in terms of climate change, yes, uh, because of its major impact on drought, wind erosion, increasing wind erosion from the Sahara and desertification and the overall impact on um, human livelihoods in the country. We've seen even a lot of coverage, the, the threats of, you know, day zero in Cape Town and South Africa, for instance. Mm. Does Nigeria have like, you know, similar water stress? Is there kind of a, do we talk about day zero? That language is not one that is used in Nigeria. Right. That language can only be used in an environment or a society where there is a level of water accessibility. The language of day zero is deeply, in my estimation, deeply connected to, you know, fully functional centralized water systems. In Nigeria, about 70 to 80% of Nigerians do not have access to water coming from centralized systems. So that language, I have never come across, you know, the language of day zero in any literature, any document, any document on, on Nigeria. It speaks very broadly to this difference. I, was, I would like to speak about uh, the difference between you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, Western Africa, Central, these regional differences and Southern Africa. Um, so when we try to overlay you know, different discourses and different languages, it tends in some ways to, to hide the real challenges that individual nations or regions uh, face. So... I've never heard that term in, in terms of day zero because, yeah. yeah, largely people don't have access to centralized system, less than 10% of Nigerians. What you've highlighted is that th there's um, a, a range of ways that kind of uh, water justice can affect different nations for a variety of reasons. And obviously you know, language has to do with that. But I've, I've heard of this, this word tra transaqua. Could, could you explain what that, what that means? So the transaqua interbasin water transfer project is policy strategy taken over, taken upon by the management of the Lake Chad Basin Commission, of the Lake Chad Basin itself. The Lake Chad Basin is managed by a commission of the four, basically the four riparian uh, countries, which consist of Nigeria, Chad Republic, Niger Republic, and Cameroon. So all the, those four countries uh, the ones responsible. I have to say that about 90% of the human population suffering from the effect of the, the Lake Chad, the receding, the drying, the secation of Lake Chad, Nigerians, they live in Nigeria. 
So the Transaqua is a project that is designed to take water from the Congo River, about 2,400, 500 kilometers away from the Congo River to replenish the drying waters of Lake Chad. But there's a lot of politics around the idea itself, its feasibility, its necessity, urgency that has been known for over 40 years. That's quite a long time. And you mentioned that there are kind of four key countries, but there's also global actors like uh, China and the European Union. Can you talk a bit more about the politics of the situation? I think with the scope of the project, if or when it is completed, the, the canal will be the longest interbasin transfer in the world. Maybe only next closest to it will be the three gorges in, in, in China. When you have, for many least developed countries and you know, middle-income countries, when you have huge projects, mega, mega infrastructure, water infrastructure development like that, there is no way they can proceed without the intervention of uh, multilateral agencies and w- largely Western actors. It sounds like it's very um, complex and, and multi-layered. As a Nigerian person, but also a scholar of water governance, what do you see the pathway forward being? What would you like to see happen? I think with the construction of the Transaqua, I probably wouldn't want to make any big judgment on, on that. <laughs> That's okay. Um, but, <laughs> but it's one of those you know, white elephant projects. It's something that is, I can say quite boldly, like will never happen unless there is a different strategy employed by the proponents of the advocates of, of, of this project to break it down in a way that it can escape the sight of environmental NGOs who have been at the forefront of opposing it and also like even some of the local members that do not see the drying up of the lake as a problem caused largely by climate change or desertification. So there are all these competing understanding of the nature of the problem, whether it is cyclical, whether it is permanent. Um, There's overwhelming evidence that, you know, the drying up of Lake Chad is a cyclical issue, dating from reports written by European, we call them vagabonds sometimes, but explorers. (laughs) European explorers in the 19th century, speaking about some of the realities of what happens today. For example, the breaking up of the lake into the northern and the southern part. That was recorded in 1908. You know, it's not a new phenomenon. Yeah, but there's been significant decrease from between 1963 and and also a point I would like to make is the issue of public accountability. And by that, I'm not just talking about financial misappropriation of funds. I'm talking more specifically about project implementation. So in 2016, there was a a plan called the Buhari Plan. The Buhari Plan, that is the name of the current president, is a short-term, medium-term, and long-term plan. And during the creation of the plan, they found out that one of the major problems is the injustice created by uh, poor project implementation over a long period of time. So, and this is not just about government. It's about contractors. It's about funding agencies. It's about even the collusion of certain powerful people on the ground over a period of time. So I think 
that's a very critical point. Increasing uh, public accountability, it, it's a really big issue. Well, Boyega, thank you so much for telling us about some of the water justice issues and structural issues and politics. I feel like we could do an entire podcast series just about Nigeria and water if we had time. But thanks so much for giving us your insight today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really glad. Thank you, Boyega. That was a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for introducing to to your colleague, Kat. It's a pleasure and a privilege to have Boyoga as a colleague from the Australian National University. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating hearing about all of the different politics that are going on in this situation. Yeah, pressures from from China, from the EU. You know, I I guess we like to, at a a face value, imagine that the EU barely has anything to do with Africa anymore. But in this vacuum of no US leadership. Yeah, well, I guess certainly uh, Europe has been in, involved in a number of other countries for some time <laughs> now. And we also are hearing about all of the international aid agencies. But of course, the main players there that we were hearing about with this big dam transaqua were the countries themselves. And there's that tension, it sounds like, between the Congo and Nigeria and where that water will end up. Yeah, they're, they kind of have a, a, a unique history, even just, I, w- I would imagine, cultural tensions even that would make make that kind of thing hard for us to understand as as Westerners. And, you know, that even shows in, in kind of me with the little faux pas of saying, you know, day zero there. Like, of course, that isn't an appropriate thing to say when they don't even have a centralized system, when not, not everyone even has access to water. So they're kind of already at day zero, you know? Well, I mean, I think as Boyega was saying, it's just it's just a term that fits really well in one situation, like Cape Town that we were hearing about earlier, doesn't fit very well for the daily lives of many Nigerians. So I guess that's on us that we were trying to take a concept from one area and apply it to another area that's a totally different country really far away. So that's our lesson. But I think that is something that happens a lot when we're talking about water is sometimes people will try and apply concept from one area to another. And it, sometimes it's just inappropriate. Yeah. Yeah. You can't kind of reify it all. And, and I mean, that's the thing about water justice, right? It's the whole project, you know, it's water justice for everyone. That's, you know, that's our motto. And we have to operate on the terms that set of people's make, you know, we, we have to, look at the individual situations and listen to them and then use that language and use those or that that knowledge that they have so that's exactly it and when we talk about water justice there's not just one way of thinking about water justice and i guess as two australians we need to be careful to not try and impose our own preconceived ideas about what water justice looks like yeah well and and equally um it's been really enlightening that that all of africa all of sub-saharan africa that we've we will be looking over um, in the episode is you know is different we can't generalize we can't kind of homogenize it as, a, as an issue absolutely and as i was saying i almost i wish we could have an entire podcast series just about each country that we've heard about in this episode because there is just so much going on there's so many different regions within each country and so many different issues. It's just, we're just getting to scrape the surface today. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have to move on to uh, other issues in Botswana, but uh, certainly over the series, we'll be able to look at different continents uh, uh, as well in different situations. So 
With such a scarce resource at stake, it is important to remember that water isn't just for human consumption. Entire ecosystems depend on water supply and weather cycles to survive and thrive. And when we consider the mass extinctions Africa is threatened by, our attention should be turned to our Earth cohabitors' wildlife. Flora and fauna don't receive a significant amount of political attention, but they exist in a tight and delicate balance with us. The reality is that we have to come up with clear economic valuation, because if you don't, you cannot develop political willpower and policy. Because in my experience, government, particularly in, in economies that are struggling, they have to argue it on the basis of income, wealth generation, and food security. So we need as scientists, as people advocating change or our voice for a different sector or maintaining conservation to realistically figure out how can it work for society in that environment. Dr. Kathleen Alexander is a professor at Virginia Tech University, director of the Chobe Research Institute and the founding member of the Center for Conservation of African Resources, Animals, Communities and Land Use, or CARICAL. Kathy has a deep understanding of diseases at the human, wildlife and environmental interface and has worked with the Botswana government to advise and direct policy for wildlife conservation and to improve public health. Water is the basis of life on Earth, and so the quality of water is as important for animals and humans alike as much as the quantity. And like our water use affects animals, so too does their use of water affect humans, as well as the greater environment. Kathy's work with wildlife in southern Africa directly relates to the environmental shifts with water quantity and quality changes that affect humans in more ways than just thirst. Kat and I were able to speak with Kathleen to discuss the critical roles for wildlife in the continued operation of environment systems. Dr Kathleen Alexander, thanks so much for joining us today. Kathleen, we really appreciate you making time to appear on this important series. We'd like to start by asking you, you could tell us a little bit about wildlife and drought in southern Africa. Wow, that's a big topic, isn't it? Because it's sort of the lifeblood of everything that happens here. In fact, actually, interestingly, just to back up a step, the currency in Botswana is called pula, which is rain. That's how important water and drought is to the socioeconomics, the culture of the people here, and actually across the Southern African region. So drought really just sort of governs everything. It's sort of the possibility of what can and can't happen. And of course, the poorer you are, the more you feel those environmental impacts. And of course, you know, when we talk about wildlife, it's wildlife, people, livestock, it's the whole ecosystem and the biodiversity and the plants. So a wellspring of growth and opportunity, food and, and options, and then very little. We did have a recent drought period where it was just, we were losing cattle, wildlife. I mean, it was just a very difficult time. And, you know, in the olden days, back, back, back before we had fences and so many people, animals moved and people moved to where water was. We just don't have those opportunities anymore. So drought impacts us quite profoundly because we live in our location and we're constrained to whatever resources happen to be there. And now those resources are so variably allocated both in time and space, not only from utilization, but climate change and from just the types of dynamics that are inherent to Southern Africa, that wildlife, drought, the human condition is really variable over time. Far out. Uh, you'll be looking at a lot of uh, endangered species as well, and I can't imagine that a drought or uh, undersupply of water is helping any of those situations either. No, indeed not. And I think, you know, when we, we start talking about endangered species, they really just show us the most vulnerable of our wildlife populations. But really, it's the whole community that suffers, you know, the haves and have-nots. And so there are species that do relatively well. 
the, the animals that are not are water independent. But then if there's no forage, uh, because there's no rainfall, then we still have problems. So, you know, the, the, the difficulty always comes in the times of scarcity, because scarcity is by definition lack of enough for everyone, including wildlife, livestock, and people. And then that's where we, you know, you, you come to those tough choices about how do you manage the needs of an ecosystem, of a community, uh, inclusively, and dealing with endangered species, for example, that have more emergent critical needs in terms of not losing additional animals that are necessary to maintain that species. But then just, you know, the woman that's living alone in her home and has a tiny bit of, you know, corn out the back and three children to feed and there's no more subsidies from government because of a pandemic. How do you manage those, that incredible intersection, which is really challenging for any government. And, and that's why I think actually, as we look at issues of social justice, you know, we're all advocating or there is a sector that we represent in some respects. However, it's the culmination of the survival of all those balanced culmination that really is the sustainability there. There's no one angle that you can take. It just doesn't work that way. If you fail to think about what's going on with livestock or with wildlife or with people, and you look at one element of it, you will miss the whole picture. And it's the complexity of the whole picture that really challenges us for the solution, because that's where the problem lies. It isn't any one sector or any one entity that's vulnerable. Mm. That's it. We are talking about complex systems here. And I think you made a really good point now about how dynamic the environment is as things change. Sometimes one species is favour and another species is not. Equally with water, we think a lot about water quantity, but we need to think about changes to water quality and what that does to the system. And I understand you've recently done some work on water quality and drought. Kathleen, could you tell us a bit about that? Well, it's it's really fascinating. I don't think I realised how complex it was. And I, I started actually working on water quality because, I mean, diarrheal disease is such a common problem across Africa and it takes a lot of lives. And yet it is such a, a quintessentially solvable problem. Even if you have poor access uh, or, or you have the quality is low, so you have quantity but low quality, you still can boil your water, but people don't. So again, we're just talking about the complexity of the problem. So you might have a resource problem, and then you have a socio-cultural problem where I'm not willing to take whatever steps it is to protect me. And that's a very, and we can talk about that because that's a hugely complex issue as well. But what we found really is that we were seeing these big fluxes and, and increases in E. coli, and, and E. coli are used to monitor the fecal load in the water. So how do we know, how do you monitor natural water resources for their quality? We look at sediment levels and we look at, at E. coli as an indicator of, of what's going on and what are the inputs. So going from one spectrum to the wildlife issues which you raised, let me take a step back and just explain that surface water, of course, is an access to surface water. Proximity to surface water is a huge Everybody wants some, particularly in dryland savannas where there just isn't. So people need access, livestock need access, wildlife need access. Now, the, the, the idea that wildlife need access to riverfront is really not usually high on the political agenda and it's sort of, you know, burrowed into the conservation topic and that has only a limited amount of priority. But what was really important and interesting about the work that we've done here is we've been able to identify that it's not really necessarily a conservation priority. It's a human health priority. And what we found is that as you compress and limit your wildlife population, which you need because it's an important engine of growth, you 
degrade the riparian area. And we were seeing all the areas of the most significant declines in water quality were spatially associated with where we had the most elephants. So now what is the argument there? The political argument that now has leverage in parliament is to say, listen, we cannot afford to de-gazette any more of our riverfront because when we do this, we compress wildlife and wildlife also can degrade water quality. So as we seek to balance our opportunities and the conservation ethic that we have in wildlife, as well as our public safety, it makes sense. Indeed, it makes financial sense in terms of the public health burden and the cost of that to maintain those riverfront areas. So I guess what I, I'm always intrigued and compelled by is these connections. And if we can bring them out and we can make them real for people, then it isn't just a, you know, are you saving the wildlife or you only care about people? It's linked. And I think that example shows a, this beautiful convergence of where failure to understand how humans and animals utilize the landscape in an integrated manner fails to allow us to understand what the intervention is, maintain riverfront access, identify river change that is going to be highly variable in these African river systems, and then engage the right technologies to protect our communities. So it's this balancing act that I keep going back to. What I was wondering, Kathleen, is if you could tell us a bit about where elephants move when water is plentiful versus where they are when there's drought and what that looks like. Well, that's a, a really important question, actually, because it, it drives a lot of the, the issues and problems. So in a, a country like Botswana, where there's only three sources of surface water, permanent surface water, a water-dependent species like an elephant is going to sit tight on the riverfront for the entire time in which you have a in which there's not sufficient water outside in the interior of the country. So during the dry season, we always see this convergence of hundreds of thousands of elephants coming. And, and where I work in Chevy District, this endangered species is outnumbers people four to one, five to one. And, and they're big and they're dangerous. And, but people love them. I mean, people, you know, there's a lot of people that don't, but there's a lot of local people that really do love elephants. So they're iconic. But during drought periods, just like every other species in the landscape, with people, humans, we're obviously insularized because we prioritize water access and we have mechanisms of doing that. Elephants don't. And so there's a lot of elephants that will just have to stay at the riverfront until the water is sufficient. And that has a lot of add-on problems. You know, the one beauty about the Botswana system and this region of the country is that elephants can move, always limited by access to water. So then you have issues of forage and you have a growing elephant population. And then there's, you know, the politics of that. You know, there's not enough elephants, there's too many elephants, there's this problem, there's that problem. And what I did some, some work on actually, you know, the bigger issue here, is, of course, is conflict that, that develops over this resource. And it's a, a presence conflict because, you know, crops aren't on the ground anymore uh, in the dry season when we're really having these drought periods. So it's more, I ran and I go, you know, the elephants moving into urban centers or the elephants moving close to village areas and having conflict with people who are getting wood and maybe they lose their lives or maybe elephants get shot and various other types of interactions that are very poor. But one of the things that, that, that and we haven't published this research, but we had all of the conflict records. And what was very clear from that is that it wasn't the numbers of elephants. So conflict wasn't rising because elephant populations were rising. 
what happened is the conflict levels were increasing because of the rainfall patterns. So the more rain you had, the more you could move out and the greater your conflict interface. The less rain, the more concentrated your ability to move and the more focused your conflict interface was and less conflict. So higher rainfall years led to larger dispersal patterns and greater conflicts in the agricultural season and a lower rainfall levels led to less. But it's really an interesting issue because certainly that's not anybody's thinking. The thinking is as elephant populations go up, conflict goes up, but that's not the case. Even conflict is just as intimately connected to the environmental conditions. So the hydrology in a dry land system drives just about everything, including conflict. Yeah, well, I, I guess the, the biggest takeaway, I mean, we've asked you questions about wildlife and you've kind of come back to the system. And it's interesting because for us looking for policy solutions, we need to not just think about the human need for water and need to think about the, the wildlife because it, that ends up coming back and having impact on the human needs for water. So it's good at least to, to take away that we, we need to focus on almost everything at once, as hard as that is. <laughs> I think one of the things you just, I think what's really important about what you're talking about is, is the idea that there's, there is a need to even talk about wildlife. Because there's certainly an appreciation that, you know, wildlife's natural and it just gets on with it. And as long as we're not killing it with a, a weapon, then everything's good. And that's certainly not the case. You destroy the landscape, you reduce water, you lose those animals. And, and you know, it, it's interesting because it depends on which choir you're, you're preaching to, right? So the wildlife sector is all, all understands. And, and in fact, the only thing that's important is the wildlife, really, honestly, and it, sometimes, not with everybody, but with a large group of people. And then in the human area, it's just, we just need land for people. And the policy environment, I would agree, certainly is not inclusive of the natural landscape requirements of the animal part of the, of the equation because it hasn't had to in the past. And I'm not saying that it, it shouldn't have, it just never had to. I have priorities. I love wildlife. I love it all to be protected. But the cost of that priority for someone living in the enclave, for example, in northern Botswana, is, is very different than the cost that priority has for me. So we have to balance those priorities and those costs and find a way to manage the positives and the negatives so that we can realize all the opportunities that are there, not only for wildlife and landscape preservation, but livelihoods and health. Yes, and when we're talking about water justice, it is it's absolutely a social justice issue. So water justice needs to be for everyone and it does need to look at these different framings of problems and not just impose a solution to a different problem in a situation. So yeah. when we are looking at wildlife, which maybe is a, a term that has particular connotations, it's another way of teasing apart and understanding these, these issues, but always coming yeah. back to what does this mean for justice for, for people? Because justice for water and justice for animals and for people are linked, as you so yeah. eloquently said. Yeah. Well, I, I really want to say thank you for the work you're doing. I think it's super important. And I was really happy to get a chance to contribute some small bit. But keep it up because it's, it's, a, it's the discussions about what, what this all means that really you know, matters. And so thank you for taking the time. And, and certainly thank you for inviting me to, to participate. 
thank you for making the time. We we really appreciate you joining us for this podcast, Dr. Kathleen Alexander. Kathy, thank you. What a pleasure to talk to Kathleen. It was a, a fascinating conversation. She lent us heaps of her time, which was which was fantastic. That's right. And to be honest, I hadn't really thought about elephants, water quality and drought before. So I loved hearing a bit more about that and some of the complexities around water justice and water scarcity. Yeah, because, you know, it's one of the most of the world is covered in water, but not all of it is drinkable, I guess. And, and so and the same could be is said for, for animals and, and, and wildlife. And... Yeah, the impact of water, whether there's too much of it or not enough, is massive. And sometimes we can't predict, I guess, from the outside what these impacts will be. I thought there were some great insights into the different patterns of movement of animals and, and people and in, indeed plants and ecosystems through cycles of both wet and dry season, but also drought and flood times. So a key point I drew from it was how dynamic things are and solutions need to understand the dynamic nature of these relationships. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you need to understand what the effects are. Looking at the diarrheal disease coming out of uh, the, the, the water quality when, when there's less water, consequences that we might not have thought of unless you know we had Kathleen to explain them so I guess it's important like Gina said to talk to all of your stakeholders and and, and listen that's right and then there was that critical point that Kathleen made about the way problems are framed and understood and not taking a solution to one type of problem and just going plonk Let's put it in this other situation so it doesn't necessarily respond to the problem and it can even make problems worse. True. As Kathleen said, you need to look at uh, the limitations of the land that, that you're on. Like you know, Africa can't be a predominantly agricultural economy. Yeah, that's right. So often we are talking about quite arid environments and certainly that creates a natural limitation to the types of industries that that land can support. So I think that point about understanding the inherent limits is important, but also about understanding the strengths. Like what does this particular regional landscape and these people, what are their strengths? What do they have to offer and how can policy support that? Yeah, that's that's great. So Southern Africa, nothing in isolation. I like it. All right. Well, thank you very much, Kat. Thanks, Tim. This concludes our venture into the dynamic water justice issues around Africa, and we hope that you found it as stimulating as you did informative. We look forward to journeying further into this immensely deep topic in future episodes. For now, if you found any of these interviews of particular interest, you can find out more information about our guests' work in the episode description. Please consider subscribing to the Water Justice Podcast and sharing this episode, as it helps spread the ideas of water justice. We hope you'll stay tuned for future episodes, but bye for now.